In the end, the measure of your life will not be money or time. It's the impact you make. It was Steve Blank who said that. He's largely credited with laying the groundwork for modern entrepreneurship, and we believe every founder should know his work. He's an eight-time founder himself, a pioneer of the lean startup movement, and he's written some of technology's most iconic books about building startups. He's been a senior fellow at Columbia and also teaches at Stanford. In this episode, Steve and James Courier break down what it takes to build startups in this downturn and why speed is your number one asset right now. So Steve, you are a Stanford professor. You're a senior fellow of entrepreneurship at Columbia. And, and, and largely, I think we all know you as one of the fathers of modern entrepreneurship. Um, you know, you came up with a customer discovery methodology and, and, and really gave birth to the lean startup uh, methods that we've seen from Eric Reese and other people you've collaborated with. How entrepreneurship is taught has really changed under, under your watch over the last few years. I mean, you, you were raised in New York, live in Pescadero, and uh, one of the foremost thinkers about innovation on the West Coast, and just incredibly grateful to have you here. The last time I think we saw each other was at a dinner at Avia with Gigi Levy-Weiss, my partner. When people yeah. were actually uh, having dinners in restaurants. That's right. And so, you know, let's just jump right in because uh, there's so much to, to be learned here. But in this new remote digital world, how do you think startup formation changes? Is there anything that you're noticing in terms of how you think the startup should be acting right now to, to get going? I think number one is figuring out what the new normal looks like, because that affects what your business model is. And what I remind people is if your business model looks the same as it did the first of March, either you were one of the luckiest people on the face of the earth, or you've been hiding under a rock, one of the two. And, you know, I'd be like saying, check with your investors to see if they agree. Number two is if you're building your product for some startups, oh, I can't talk to anybody. Therefore, I could just go and build a product. No customer discovery. I've actually found the opposite is true. Customer discovery is a lot easier right now. And so is early sales, at least early sales calls, is that um, people are at home. They're no longer surrounded by a series of gatekeepers like admins and secretaries and whatever. I mean, some of them are like, are happy to be like, dear, you deal with the kids, you know, <laughs> and, and she hands the kids to the husband and she'll take the call, right? You can now get the VPs. You know, I, I spend a good chunk of my time um, now consulting for the largest corporation in the world, which is Department of Defense. And I can now get on the phone to four-star generals who are wearing their, you know, T-shirts and whatever, who like you can, usually you had to talk to three colonels and an an assistant to get to their scheduler. You could get to CEOs of major corporations. As I said, though, what becomes harder is if you want to do serious deals versus demos and trials. And and if you're trying to close 100,000 six or seven digit orders, that's a lot tougher. It doesn't mean it's impossible, but again, that right. connection is missing. And also, large enterprises are are less amenable to spending cash right now until they understand what their future looks like and their customers. But but almost everything else, B2C is a lot easier. Um, people are at home. They're spending money, at least those who are employed. You know, we have a, a 15% unemployment rate in this country as of uh, as of this podcast. So we got to take into account a large chunk of who would have been our customers are no longer there. But I think yeah. for, for startups, um, it's, it's time to rock and roll. And if you're making a list of excuses, um, other than you're out of cash, <laughs> I'd be putting the pedal to the metal. And let me go back to that question again, one more piece. It might be that your existing head of sales or existing head of marketing is still living in the pre-pandemic world. And by now, they should have either pivoted 
or you need to part ways. So that's the two P's rather than the three D's, you know, pivot or part ways. If somebody is yeah. still saying in marketing, I need to run the same, you know, campaign as I did before, you know, time out. And if I'm like a VP of sales who's giving you a forecast that's just heading downward because, oh, we can't make personal calls and sales calls anymore. Yeah, I can understand that that efficiency has gone down dramatically, but don't tell me you're doing the same process that you were doing before. Yeah, people have to have to adjust psychologically and emotionally to the new state. If they can't, then they're not. They shouldn't be in a startup. Here's the other piece of that. Um, you just said something wonderful, and I want to at least make everybody feel both good and bad on what you just said. You know, people compare it to what's going on. In fact, it was Ben Horowitz, who I love, but uh, he uses the phrase "wartime versus peacetime" CEO and says, gee, we're now in wartime. You know, having been in one, I, I got to say it's a little disservice to, you know, people who serve because in wartime, if you fail, it's not measured by whether you missed your numbers or your, you lose your corner office. You measure failure by KIAs. On the other hand, what's also unfair, it's unfair to start up CEOs because if you're in the Army or Marines, you spend your career mostly training for the fight. You're running battlefield drills all the time. You were assuming that you were about to hit something head on and you train that it will be chaos and uncertainty and whatever, not, oh, okay, we're on step 23, revenue goes up to the right. So so while it's unfair to kind of say it's you know just as easy as being a wartime CEO, it's also unfair to, to, to start up and, and corporate CEOs who haven't trained for the fight. People didn't sign up for chaos and uncertainty at this level. The government didn't, and we're seeing how some of them do well or not, um, state and local, federal. Um, and we're seeing how some people rise to the occasion. The point is, is that after some period of time, you either need to step up to the fight or the fight will take over your business and you will yeah. fail. And yeah. if you're on the other side as an investor, you can't let that happen. You you have to, in fact, replace wartime CEOs with people who can deal with the fight. It's about uh, that flexibility, that mental pliancy that, that we all need in order to adjust to any sort of startup situation, and in particular, this massive dislocation of, of the of the pandemic. Um, yeah, this is disruption with a capital D. We, we've, we've talked about it, and now we're all living it. And, you know, you and I uh, talk a lot about speed is often the secret weapon. And you wrote that uh, to adjust and tackle an acute crisis, speed is the key ingredient. So this is an acute crisis is now turning into a persistent crisis, right? I mean, it's months and months and months. Do you think anything changes about using speed as a tool uh, with startups? How do you think about speed now? It, it, when I was writing about this in the beginning of March, it was like, hey, <laughs> the, the world is over. I know it was fun, kind of with infinite capital and, and everything looked like this and people would give you money. That's over. Take some action. Don't sit around. That's what I meant about speed and urgency. And hopefully mm. the survivors have kind of like mm. eight cuts and, and uh, turned down burn rates and whatever. And now I'll suggest it's time for speed again. That is, I'll contend it's not time for hunkering down but we are going to go into a different recovery than back to normal. So now mm -hmm. the speed and urgency again is, okay, what's your model for an extended recovery? That's mm -hmm. not the same model as an extended shelter in place. And, and in your community, pick your community, maybe your community is still sheltering in place. Okay, so you continue that, but we could see states and cities and localities are doing limited openings. I'll go back to what's that new configuration again. So it's time to pivot with speed again to figure out what the new normal is, how to get business and survive, and ultimately how to grow and take advantage of it. And 
Do you have a feeling, I think you might have said this, that startups should run like benign dictatorships? For those who don't know, I mean, you're a serial entrepreneur. You were involved in eight different startups. You've, you've gone through this road a number of times. You wrote uh, the book, The Four Steps to the Epiphany, your insights about how that company, uh, Epiphany, did really well and how it came to be. And, and it was read by many, many people. For those who haven't read those books, you should pick them up. Yeah, it's when dinosaurs ruled the earth is when I was an entrepreneur. It was um, most startups, not most, but a good number of them, um, when times were good, really liked this collaborative, open re- relationship. You know, we have, you know, Friday beer bashes. We listen to everybody's input. We, you know, protect everybody's sensitivities. We go out of our way to make everything conflict free. And and when you have infinite cash and infinite time and infinite whatever, and we, we don't make decisions before everybody buys in and, you know, we make sure everybody is respected. Well, that's fine until the engines are on fire and the wing's about to fall off and the plane is heading like this. Somebody has to be in charge. And, and by the way, if I'm smart as the leader of this activity, I will tap into the collective wisdom of everybody about are there some business ideas I'm missing, et cetera. But when we make decisions, we're now in survival mode. Um, And in survival mode, it is not a collaborative, like we don't have time. It's not that I don't respect you. It's not whatever. But but if we debate which way to point the ship as we're heading down, we're all going to die. I mean, metaphorically, as a company, um, we're going to just run out of cash and and go out of business and we're all going home. And so what I mean about benign dictatorship is, I'm sorry to hurt your feelings, but I've heard you and now we've made a decision and here's where we're going. And by the way, Mm -hmm. if you're unhappy... Guess what? 15% unemployment, you could join them too. But there are lots of people who would like your job. So, and by the way, if you're going to continue with a bad attitude, I will remove you from this company. And that's going to be hard for a lot of employees. And it's also hard for leadership to realize this is not the time for if we're interested in speed and urgency and everybody moving in the same direction, you know, cohesively, we just don't have the time or bandwidth for this. We could come back to this, hopefully. That is the the military dictatorship will give rise again to civilian leadership when this is over. But it's the least efficient way to run a company. And maybe there are some who who have figured it out, who figured out how to do it and still have everybody sing Kumbaya. But um, I don't think so. I, I, you know, on a battlefield, you don't take a poll of, you know, how does the squad feel about, like, <laughs> taking the next objective? Right, right. We're all, we're all doing it, guys. You know, I think if you read Plato's Republic again, you'll notice that he says the, the benign dictator is the best form of government. The problem is when the dictator's son takes over and he's not right. that, that great of a person right. or the, the daughter right. takes over and forget it. So I guess the other thing is, um, you know, I was looking the other day at your secret history of Silicon Valley which is a fantastic video uh, talk you've given. And in it, you asked this really prescient question because you had, you had pointed out that the foundation of Silicon Valley came from crisis that drove the military industrial complex to put a lot of money and people here in the Valley to solve a crisis need, primarily in the Cold War. And then that gave way over time to the profit motive. And now we've gotten into this profit cycle and Silicon Valley you know, probably about 15 years ago, just started talking about money, money, money. And prior to that, there was sort of a time where there was a balance between product and profit. And and then you said, is there another crisis that will restart the Valley's cycle of innovation? How do you think that the cycle of innovation has stalled, really? And do you think there is going to be a crisis that we'll get back to that will mobilize us in a new direction or a different way? You know, that's a great question. I've been thinking about that a lot. I'm thinking about that with my work with the Department of Defense, um, thinking about it with my work with large companies, and obviously 
my fingers in, in teaching my students and startups as well. You, you know, in the in the 20th century, by accident, uh, this country had a national industrial policy that was driven by venture capital that was aligned with uh, the country's needs. Hard to imagine now, but VCs invested in both tech, hardware and software, and life sciences, same firm. Then things got so specialized that almost every VC firm now, few exceptions, they don't they don't even know where where the life science folks live, even though they might be across the hall or in South San Francisco. And that's just the investors. And what happened uh, post-1995 when Netscape went public and then accelerated in the first bubble and certainly accelerated 10 years ago is venture capitalists decided that social media was like a gold mine. You know, uh, initial dollars investment uh, was incredibly low, even though you might have needed hundreds of millions of dollars for scale. <clears throat> but it didn't require tens of millions of dollars to ship a hardware product or, or something as difficult as semiconductors or supercomputers or anything else. And so all of a sudden, the needs of national interest and the, and the versus the profits that could be made uh, pulled investment away from what I consider were the national interests. It wasn't that the life science folks weren't still investing. They were making a ton of money in, in therapeutics and devices and diagnostics and, and, and this maybe the small overlap with tech and digital health. But at least for the traditional tech and hardware stuff, most of those dollars now no longer went to what I thought was hard tech, the things that National mm. Science Foundation made. It went from largest profit. And because the phrase national industrial policy is the third rail of the United States, there's no way politically. It's like saying, let's reintroduce the draft. Those are two things right. you don't right. say, even though I think people would support some kind of national service. I also think people should probably support some kind of national industrial policy, not like forcing VCs to where to invest, but actually giving them huge incentives if we had an opinion of what would be in the country's interest. Well, I think I was really driving at the fact that there's two motivations to innovate. Right? If you have enough fear of the Russians, you are willing to try all sorts of things. If you have a great desire for profit, you are also willing to try a great many things. Other than that, you're going to stay in some sort of comfortable, you know, unanimous opinion, consensus type <laughs> behavior that we see in large corporations and, you know, in large parts of the government and whatnot. And the, the Silicon Valley has been for a while now, the sort of crazy uncle in the garage where we do stupid things. And one out of 20, one out of 50, those stupid things turn into something wonderful. And so, there's a so, culture around that and methodologies, but there are these two motivations, crisis and profit. And it's been profit for quite some time. And I'm wondering if, if the pandemic or if something else might create a crisis motivation for us to innovate and, and shake things up a little bit so that we see more progress faster. So now you're going to get into personal and political opinions, and I'm going to try to stay away from at least the political stuff, but it's involved yeah, here. You know, in the you mentioned Russia. When we competed with the Russians in the Cold War, it was pretty clear that the Russians weren't our friends. And number two is that they needed Silicon Valley technology for advanced weapon systems. And in fact, what was called the offset strategy that we used in the Cold War was we actually didn't beat them with more tanks or artillery. We beat them with software and and, uh, and semiconductors, um, and building smart weapons, uh, smart reconnaissance and, and stealth computing horsepower they just didn't have. And we didn't buy stuff from them. They tried to steal stuff from us. Well, fast forward today is that um, China is trying to turn us into Great Britain of the 1950s and 60s, meaning the the also ran compared to the new superpower. And they've done that with a combination of 
uh, aggressive theft, you know, aggressive growth and, and incredible entrepreneurship investment and talent and whatever. If you haven't been to Pearl River Valley or Northwest Beijing, yeah, they stole everything, but then they figured out how to make it at a size and scale that we haven't done since the 1950s or 60s here in the U.S. At the same time, China's become, and, and not by accident, because they've had their fingers in this, a politicized issue that now sets you up for, you know, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, when in fact it should be a bipartisan national issue. A, you, does the U.S. have any national interests? Check that box. Yes, no. <laughs> Two is, what are they? You know, three is, who are we competing with? Um, and, and then four is, what do we do about it? And what's the role of startups and, and venture capital? And again, since venture capital and startups are a completely unregulated market um, and are profit-driven, that some of their investments and some of their interests have not been in the national interest. Well, mm. What you probably know, and I should just let your um, your listeners know, who if any of them are, are interested in building what are called dual-use technologies, that is, um, um, products and services that could be sold commercially, but also to the military. There's a set of investors that now meet every six weeks or so called the Defense Investors Network. That's probably now 50, 60 venture capitalists that invest in dual use companies and are interested in, in building the next generation of companies that actually are in the national interest. If you're building something, you know, in UAVs or, or something else or hardware, software and imaging, machine learning, it's, it's an interesting group of investors. You know, and the U.S. government is waking up to this as well. And uh, entrepreneurship is springing up in all the services and combatant commands and, and field agencies uh, like there's no tomorrow because all of a sudden leadership is discovering that 20-year-olds coming into the military uh, know how to do things that look like magic to the 45-year-olds. They're all computer literate. They all know how to not only get online, how to hack, how to make codes, have been, you know, build hardware and whatever. And we finally have figured out that that's an enormous resource to tap. So we're going to see some changes, I think, in the Valley. Um, I think we're going to see some changes. Uh, you know, the, the Defense Department put something called DIU, the Defense Investors Network, in place here that uh, basically funds uh, and helps uh, connect uh, early stage companies, the Defense Department, as a customer. InQtel has been a venture capitalist uh, for uh, now two decades uh, that funds early stage things of interest to the government, uh, scaling as well. At Stanford, we started a program called Hacking for Defense, which is now in 30 universities, which um, has our students work on serious and real problems in um, national defense and uh, use the lean method to build the minimum viable products by the uh, end of those 10 weeks. So a series of, of these things to, to work on, on problems that scam. You've written at the in the end, the measure of your life will not be money or time. It's the impact you make. And so many of your former students are probably reaching out to you with questions about their career paths right now. What do you say to young people who are rethinking where to put their life's energy right now? I always think that these times, whether economic crises or unfortunately, most people go through personal crises of, you know, breakup with significant others, divorces, death, new births, etc. They create an opportunity for re reflection because normally your head's down, doing your job, living your life, things are good. You think you have infinite time, infinite resources, infinite, you'll always be young forever and whatever until something happens. And th those crises are actually huge opportunities. And you ask me what I tell my students, don't waste a good crisis. <laughs> it's the time to simply think. Think about this is, 
It's like working in e-commerce, what you want to do for the rest of your life. It's okay. It's okay if you say yes, but now's the time to look around. And when you go, well, what else could I do? You go, well, you're sitting at home. You're you know, reading news about people in healthcare or people in education or people somewhere else. There's a ton of online classes. Maybe you ought to figure out what it's like to work in life sciences and make a contribution in, in diagnostics or something. Maybe you're going to reinvent school. Maybe you're going to reinvent how to deal with the less fortunate. Maybe you're going to do... Now the time when you're sitting at home just staring at a screen to take stock of your life, both past, present, and future, because nothing was preordained. Um, you're master of your own fate. You, you know, if, if there's anybody who's a who's a living testament to that, that's mine. That's me. I mean, they're, they're all by all odds, uh, I should have not ended up where I ended up. But I just assumed that no one else was going to do it for me. And I just showed up a lot and, and assumed I could do whatever I wanted to do. I think that's what most people forget, is you're master of your own fate. And this is the time to, to remember what that word carpe diem means, which is seize the day. It, it, this doesn't last forever. And so you want to make it count because you don't get it back. And for talented, ambitious people, dislocation is always opportunity. And without dislocation, there's not as much opportunity for, for the talented, ambitious people because they're being held down by the existing systems. And, and so right. now we're having a sort of a global dislocation. And so yep. that means that there's opportunity everywhere, everywhere, not just in a particular industry or particular geography. It, it's, it's, you know, it's uncomfortable. It's a dissettling, unsettling time. But it's the it's the you know as as the opening of the book goes it was the best of times and it was the worst of times and so grab it with both hands. Steve, this has been fantastic to catch up with you. Thank you for your time today. Um, I always love chatting with you. I hope to hear you back here again sometime. Great, this was fun. And uh, James, I uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your audience. <laughs>